talk to you about moving your mountain. Moving your mountain. The last several weeks we've been dealing with the subject of prayer, the importance of prayer. We're going to continue that subject this morning. Moving your mountain. Moving your mountain. In Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree is cursed. You cursed his withered. Have faith in God, Jesus said. I tell you the truth. And anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you you have received it and it will be yours. And then when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So your heavenly father, your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Verse 22 is an amazing verse in that Jesus never answers Peter. He never even brings up the fact that the fig tree has been withered. His response to Peter is, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Let's pray. Father, I believe you'll touch each heart right now. Open hearts and minds might receive from you. Holy Spirit, have your way. Stir within our hearts and we might receive this message and recognize your grace and mercy. And Father, I pray the anointing of your word will come forth and touch our hearts. And I pray, Father, that we'll allow your precious word to, to infiltrate, Lord, and to saturate our lives. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This is a passage of Scripture we've read over and over again, and it's easy to miss the depth of this passage. I have read it several times, and I have missed the depth of this truth. There's a mountain, and it can be removed. And you say, Pastor Bob, you've missed that? <laughs> no, I didn't miss that. It's pretty straightforward. I, I got that. But what I missed is the marvelous revelation of the very heart of Jesus and what he's trying to accomplish here in the 11th chapter. If you go back into the 10th chapter, you're going to rem- remember that it was there Jesus cleansed the temple. It's there where he drives out the money changers After having done this, he now comes upon this fig tree and it's not bearing any fruit. As a result, he curses it. Verse 21 tells us that the very next day, Peter and the disciples are walking past that fig tree. And Peter says to Jesus, look, the tree has been withered from its roots. This is one of Christ's illustrated sermons. You'll find throughout the New Testament as Jesus walks amongst the folks, he's always delivering these Illustrated sermons, he uses these to reveal both the truth and also reveal his heart. If you look at the timeline, you're going to find that this is occurring in the final days that Jesus was going to be here left on earth. He knows that the cross is waiting for him. And so here comes the deeper truth. The fig tree represents the death of carnal religion. Religion of works. He's talking about the death of the Jewish religion that's trying to gain God's favor by human effort. Keeping laws and regulations. Doing to receive. And the Lord is illustrating at this point with the disciples, I'm finished with that. That way of approaching the throne, that way of serving me, is dead to its roots. 
What he was saying to the disciples that day, he's saying that I am going to build my church. And my house is not going to be a den of thieves anymore, going back to what he just did at the temple. He said, my church is going to be birthed at this point, and church where faith alone reigns. It's going to be salvation by faith. It is going to be eternal life by faith. Everything is going to come by faith, knowing who I am. And so he stands there with his disciples in front of them. He stands before the disciples who are going to be the very foundation stones of his church. The very foundation stones in which he's going to build his church, and they don't get it. They don't have the faith. They don't really understand who he is and what he's about to do. They don't understand his purpose, nor do they understand their purpose. And Jesus really looks at them and says to them, how slow, you are so slow to believe. And go through the New Testament. How many times he speaks to the, he rebukes the disciples saying to them, why can't you get it? You're always thinking in earthly matters and looking around you and looking at the situations around you. You never ever really get it. You don't really understand. Why can't you simply believe? Trust me. And folks, that was the hindrance. That was the hindrance for the disciples. That was the thing that kept them from a full understanding, a full revelation of who Jesus was and who their call and mission was. And Jesus knows that it's His final days upon the earth, the cross is before Him. He knows that they've got to get this. They've got to understand, really understand, why He has cursed the fig tree. Because He sees the cross in the upper room is before Him. And He knows this is a time I must address this issue. I must address this hindrance. Because of this hindrance, because of the lack of faith, because they don't get it. I've got to, I've got to speak to them. I've got to speak to them directly. I've got to. Or they're not going to be able to make it through the hard times. They're not going to be able to make it through the, all the things that lie before them. They're not going to be able to make it because there's something. He knows there's something that is standing in their way, and it's a mountain. Peter says, look, the fig tree that you cursed, Lord, has withered from its roots. And Jesus responds by saying, have faith in God. It's amazing to me that he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. Peter doesn't address it at all. He just simply responds by saying, have faith in God. Now let's put that message of faith into context. What follows is not about fig trees. I, I saw a t-shirt that said, God hates figs. And so many times you could go through a store. That's what it is. Jesus just hates figs. You know? Right alongside me and onions. You know, we got something in common. Something, you know, that we don't like. But it's got nothing to do with figs. What follows is about faith. He's directing their attention. He's giving them a, a, a visual picture in their mind by putting them face to face before this mountain. You know, scholars over the years have tried to name that mountain, try to figure out where exactly he was and what mountain he was speaking of. They begin to spiritualize a little bit. Some they conclude that that mountain was a mountain of discouragement that they had to come over, be overcome. Some would say it was a mountain of sickness or of poverty. And you could call that mountain anything you like. It's a mountain that's there. But I think Jesus was saying, this is a mountain of unbelief. Because unbelief is the mother of all sins. 
every bit of discouragement, every bit of hopelessness, all fear, everything that, that you and I might emotionally be held back with is birthed out of that sin of unbelief. So now the Lord's going to say some. Jesus is going to say something very profound to his disciples. And I believe what he says to his disciples, he's also saying to you and I today. He's saying to them, I can't work with you. I have a great work ahead of you. I have called you, and I have called, I have called you upon your confession. I want to build my church. I must. But there's something hindering that vision. There's something hindering. Hindering from you seeing my purpose, understanding clearly why you're here. If you go through the Scriptures, go out throughout the entire Scriptures of the New Testament, you're going to find throughout the entire life of Jesus in the Gospel that he could, absolutely, he could do nothing, absolutely nothing, because of unbelief. He goes to his own hometown. And the Scripture here, he says, he did not do many miracles, therefore, because of their lack of faith. He couldn't do it then, and he can't do it now. Where there's unbelief, his hands are always tied. Even in his hometown, the Scripture says, he couldn't do a thing. And this is the mountain. It's always been the mountain. It has always been and will always be the mountain that hinders the fullness of Jesus Christ in our lives. Hinders that blessing of God being revealed to us. It hinders full revelation of who Jesus is in our own lives. That mountain of unbelief. And so the question this morning is, what is your mountain? That impossible thing that stands in front of you. What is it? Is it fear? Is it rejection? Is it anger? Unforgiveness? Could it be pride or greed or selfishness? What is your mountain? But what I want you to remember is, if it's one of those things, always remember it's rooted in unbelief. Unbelief. I mean, think about it. Could it be that you felt that God made you a promise, a wonderful promise, many, many years ago for your life, and, and it didn't happen yet, and, and time is running out? And as a result, there's this, this bitter kind of resentment against God because He doesn't answer prayer? And maybe it's not one thing. Maybe it's just the whole problem of unbelief. We really don't believe that God answers prayer. I want to tell you something. Unbelief always opens us up to every conceivable sin. Every kind of sin. Unbelief opens us up to every kind of sin. When you ask somebody, what happened? Well, how'd you lose that fire, that passion for Christ? Someone might respond, well, you know, I've been praying. I've been expecting God. I've been doing as I, what God tells me to do. And, and, and if I could just see one prayer answered, then I would believe. There was a church survey done recently, and they found that the great majority of folks today, even those in the church, don't believe God answers prayer anymore. And there may be some here this morning that actually feel the same way. Now, you won't say it out loud, but there's this nagging fear and nagging thought in your heart that even though you've prayed, you've fasted, and done all that you think you should be doing, things seem to be getting worse. Because the promises aren't coming through. You're in a place where you're saying, I don't know how long I can, I can do this, how long I can wait. And many may think as a result of that they have a right, they have a right 
not to have faith anymore because they've done everything God has called them to do according to the Word. They prayed, fasted, paid the tithes, walked righteously before God, and still as they plead and they beg, they don't see the evidence of God answering any prayer. And that's the issue the Lord's trying to get across His disciples. He's trying to get us to see, get us to understand. The issue is this, He is not amused by unbelief. Unbelief to him is satanic. It ruins whole lives. It destroys God's plan and purpose for our lives, the purpose of the church. It destroys. And God doesn't wink at unbelief in the hearts of his children. Remember the story in Luke chapter 1 of Zechariah? He's the high priest. and He's told clearly by the angel of the Lord that he's going to have a child. And though he and Elizabeth are very old in, in age and even went on to tell him the child's name is going to be John and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The Scripture is there. And verse 6 says that both of them were upright. And I want you to get this. They were both upright. Upright in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of people. They observed all the, thing, all the Lord's commandments and regulations and, regula- and they, they did it blamelessly. But the verse says, but they had no children. Obviously, they desired a child. And obviously, they would be the ones that said, you know, we've done everything we're supposed to do. We've been praying and fasting and doing everything we're supposed to do. But we're still childless. Elizabeth's still barren. And now she's getting along in age. In years. Verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him while he was right on the right side of the altar of incense. And he was startled, I guess. Scripture was gripped with fear. Remember, in the Old Te- in New Testament, anytime an angel shows up, somebody's going to get beat up. There's not a good news, you know. He's scared. And the angel says, do not be afraid, which is always good news from an angel. Right up front, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. He goes on to say, the angel goes on to say, Gabriel goes on to say, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and give you to give his name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his Birth. Verse 18. Zechariah, what did he do? He asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? There's his mountain. I'm an old man. My wife is old. Well, long in years. And look at the answer. Look at the answer the angel gave. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent here to speak to you good news. Question me? What were you thinking, dude? You know? You want to rephrase that? Let's try this again. Because you question, because of this mountain of unbelief before you. You know, remember, they have walked blamelessly before the Lord. He's old now, so he's been walking blamelessly before the Lord for many, many years. He and his wife together walked blamelessly. But because of this, verse 20 says, now you'll be silent. You'll not be able to speak until what? Until this thing comes about. Until it happens. Because you did not believe my words. Notice this. Which will come true, this is important, at their proper times. There's a whole message right there. So there's this mountain. Right in front of his eyes. He's asking the angel Gabriel, how can this be? This this is impossible. 
Now, I'm going to tell you something. The Lord doesn't cut him any slack. He doesn't say to Gabriel, Gabriel, cut him some slack, back off a little bit. He's getting old, you know. He's been faithful for all these years, so he's got this little moment right now, a weakness in his life. Let's overlook it. You know, give him some, some little bit of chocolate here and let him go. He'll be fine. No, the angel of the Lord says, because you didn't believe, I'm going to what? I'm going to lock your tongue and you're not going to be able to speak until the child's born. Which meant this, you're not going to be able to praise the Lord. You're not going to be able to worship. You're not going to be able to exalt the name of the Lord. You're not going to be able to come out and bless the congregation, which is customary for you to do. You're not going to be able to rejoice. You're not going to be part of worship because of your unbelief. Unbelief affects our worship, folks. Unbelief affects whether or not the Lord receives our worship. And you and I might be speaking the words, amen, that would exalt the Lord, but if there's unbelief in the heart, He doesn't hear it. It's like your tongues have been tied up and locked up. And folks, I'll tell you this, we will never understand this message until we know how much unbelief grieves His heart. And it's not something He just passes over lightly. We will never know how to cast out our mountain until we begin to feel and understand the pain that the Lord goes through when those who claim to love Him most, those who, who claim and, and testify that He is our God who cares and loves, God of salvation, those who have seen His work, those who have seen miracle after miracle in their past, will never understand the, the pain and hurt that comes through our lives when we have said all these things, we've testified to all these things, and then a crisis comes into our life, and suddenly we wipe away all the history. We forget everything that the Lord has done, how He's brought us to where we are. We forget it all. And until we understand, truly understand the pain of God's heart, we'll never understand this message this morning. The Scripture tells us that we, listen to this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet what Scripture says, what? He did it without sin. The Scripture says he was touched with the feelings of our infirmity. Oh, that we might understand exactly how we break his heart when we say one thing and our heart is far from, when our actions don't, don't line up with the things we say. That mountain of unbelief. When that's the condition, that's the state then it's like before the Lord, our lips are locked up. We're not able really to worship Him and praise His name. Remember Peter? Peter says, Lord, if it be you, let me walk on water. Just speak the word. Lord, if it's really you, then I need a miracle. Lord, it's really you. There's a storm right now in my life. I'm with these other disciples, but Lord, there's a storm right now. Father, Lord, G Jesus, if it's you, give me a miracle right now. Give it to me now. I believe that that request from Peter was actually, I, I believe it came from a heart of unbelief. Because, you know, unbelief is very, very selfish. Unbelief always thinks about itself. Peter's in the boat with the other disciples. And what's he doing? He's getting out of the boat. I don't want to go down with them. The storm's going to overcome. I want to get out of this boat. Get me out. Lord, I need a miracle now. Forget these guys. They can swim. I need a miracle, Lord, now. He's not thinking about the others and leaves the boat. He's thinking about himself. Who 
will deliver me out of this. And the Lord says what? Come. And if you want one word to summarize the whole gospel message, it's Jesus saying, come. 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 Just come to me. You say you want a miracle, then come to me. Don't go to somebody and with unbelief and talk. Don't get on the phone and call somebody else and, and spill your spiritual guts to them. Here's where it all comes out. That language of unbelief. Peter's looking at the condition. Here's where it comes out. He looks at the condition and he begins to sing. Jesus reaches down and takes him by the hand. I believe he's saying, why don't you believe me? Why didn't you believe? Why did you tell me that you believed? Why? And God is grieved. He's grieved. Why did you doubt me, Peter? You said you believed you stepped out of the boat, but it was motivated by selfishness and really unbelief because when the storm rains came, you looked at that rather than me. Did you forget that I am God Almighty? You tell Peter, Peter, you tell people that you believe that God is the God of the impossible, that there's nothing impossible with God. How could you then be overcome by the storm? A passing storm. Okay, that passing storm you face, it may last a little longer than you think and maybe think you ought to because you had it all figured out how it should come out. But it comes to an end. It comes to an end. King Asa is a perfect example. We're talking about 1 Kings chapter 15. We know that the scripture reveals to us that he was a godly king, a godly king of, of Judah. If you go back to the story, you're going to find that he wipes out sodomy, he wipes out idolatry, he breaks down all the heathen temples, and actually, under his leadership, revival comes to Judah. And right smack dab in the midst of the revival, Oh, nothing bad should happen. Now everything's wonderful. In the midst of the revival, a million-man army comes out from Ethiopia to attack. Their goal is to destroy Jerusalem and wipe out the nation. And the Bible account tells us, you read that later on, the Bible account tells us that he, the king turns to the Lord and he relied upon him. He humbles himself before God. He calls the people to prayer. And, and God, through his prayer and the, prayer and the faith of, of the army, because of the people, the Ethiopian army is completely destroyed. It's much larger, much stronger, much mightier, but it's destroyed. And the message the Lord gives to the king is this. As long as you walk with this kind of faith, and as long as you rely upon me, as long as you fully trust me, and never give up your confidence in me, you're going to experience victory after victory. Oh, there'll be battles. See, if you're having a victory, that means there was a battle. You're going to experience victory after victory. Yes, there could be battle after battle, but you're going to experience victory. But if you turn away from me, you're going to have war after war after war, and you're not going to have victory, but disorder. Chaos in your life. Chaos. And this king took this message to heart. For 36 years, he walked in great faith. He experienced battles, but he experienced victories in those battles. He builds the house of the Lord. He turns the nation around. If you're living in that time, it would have been glorious to live in Judah. 
Judea, Judah at that time. But now, 36 years later, another tragedy comes. There's another crisis. The backslidden king of Israel has now attacked Judah. They've attacked about five miles from Jerusalem and cuts out all the trade routes. There's a blockade. Now that blockade, if it continues, the king understands it's going to be the economic collapse of his country. It'll bring famine. There'll be no food. There'll be no fuel. They don't, don't have the things they need to survive. This was a crisis. The scripture it comes upon them. It comes upon them during the time of, uh, of revival, during a time of, of them seeking the Lord. This comes upon them at that time. You know, when that happened before, 36 years before that, it didn't really bother him. The crisis didn't bother him. Why? Because the king had, had the ear of the Lord. He, he called upon the name of the Lord. It wasn't a problem. There was a right relationship. He was walking in faith. But now after 36 years, he panics and he, he calls his counselors together and he says, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And the thoughts planted in his mind, ask the Syrians. Ask the Syrians to help you get out of this problem, this crisis. Ah, that'll work. So he strips, the scripture says, he strips the temple of its gold and of its silver. He goes into his own palaces and he strips of all the gold and silver and he sends a delegate to Syria and the nation. Now remember, Syria was their arch enemy. It's kind of like going to the devil for advice as a child of God. He says to the Syrians, here's all my wealth. I have nothing. Everything that I own is now given unto you. And I'm asking you to deliver me. Deliver my people. That is definitely an act of unbelief. And what's, what's a mar remarkable, if you continue to study the Scripture and study what was going on at that time, the Lord at that time had already made plans. Plans were already underway to deliver Syria into His hands. But that amount of unbelief made Him panic. I think maybe the hardest part of faith is the last half hour. It's when a lot of people in the last hour panic, give up, walk away. God Almighty was planning. He was planning to, to give the most glorious deliverance you ever see to, Israel, to, to, to Judah. Just before the Lord is about ready to, to, He's making plans to give you the most glorious deliverance you've ever imagined. You sit before this mountain of unbelief. You sit before this mountain of, of helplessness and powerlessness, fear, panic. What's God's answer? What's the answer to the problem? This mountain of unbelief. How can, I, how can I cast it out? How do I get rid of this thing in my life that hinders everything God wants to do? All these questions. The thing that hinders ministry. The thing that hinders the marriage. Everything in life. It's interesting too because after it was all said and done, after, after Judah was, was delivered and, and, and victory was won through Syria's army, etc., the prophet of the Lord comes and he says to him, I'm telling you what the Lord is saying. Because you didn't believe, from now on you're going to have wars. And everything's going to be out of order in your life. You turn to flesh, he says, and now you're going to have to get your Future direction from flesh. You lean on your own understanding. Go for it. 
From this point on, you're on your own. So what happens when we get out of God's will? We get out of faith. We begin to what? Panic. And it grieves. It grieves the heart of God. And secondly, we turn to our own understanding, our own thoughts, our own fears. And it becomes a, a way of life. A cloud begins to hover over us. And we go moment after moment putting on the mask, but, but really, we're really unbelief. It's there. We're, we're panicking. There's fear in our lives. So you say, Pastor, how do you cast this out of my life? How do I get this out? How do I, how do I see the sun come out? How do I see light come into my life once again? He said, it's your responsibility. Don't keep calling me for it. It's your responsibility. He said, I want you to speak to your mountain. And say what? Be gone. And it will be gone. And when it's gone, whatever you ask for, or whatever you say, everything you want, desires, you shall have it. Wow! Look at Pastor Bob's finally preaching! And a whole lot of people stop right there. They never continue. Because someone says, well, Pastor Bob, I spoke to my mountain. I spoke to that fear. I spoke to that situation. And it continued. It didn't change. And they get tired and ticked off. Or once in a while, something happens. They, oh, praise God, he moved. But, but, oh, my God, it didn't work, Lord. If that's the case, that's what you would think. But I'm telling you, you missed it. You missed what God was speaking. You missed the Scripture. You missed understanding how the Lord works. I'm so glad you're here this morning because I'm going to show you something that'll set you, set you free, but it's going to cost you something. Oh no. But it's the only way to get rid of that mountain of unbelief. And someone says, Oh, no way, Pastor Bob. Stop it. One more thing. No, 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 no. Jesus said, All I have to do is have faith. All I've got to do is speak to the mountain. Just speak that word. Okay. You try that. Go ahead. Do that. Continue doing that the rest of your life. And let's see what happens in the result of this after a period of time. How victorious do you feel? How discouraged do you get? Go ahead, practice that. And see what it brings you. Until you do that. With all, without what I'm going to tell you, you just try talking to your mountain like it's going to go away. I'm going to tell you something. The devils are going to laugh at you. They're going to laugh at you just like they laughed at the disciples when they tried to cast out a demon. The scripture says they tried to and they got, it didn't work very well for them. And Jesus came to them and said, and this is important, why we need to know the word of God in its entirety and we understand God's plan and his purpose because he walks up to them and says, look it, just because you spoke it and tried to cast it out, it isn't going to work. He said, this kind comes out what? By prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Remember, this comes out by what? Prayer and fasting. You want authority over this mountain? It comes out by what? Prayer and fasting. You want authority over demonic powers? It comes out by prayer and fasting. You, you, you want authority over the hounding fears and doubts? Then there's a place you've got to go. There's a place you have to pray at, and it's called your Gethsemane. And we miss that today. That garden, you know the garden, the garden where Jesus went when his cup was, was filled. It was overwhelming. It was crushing him. He goes into the garden. 
Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor Bob. We don't go in the gardens today. We don't go to a place called Gethsemane today. Oh, no, no, no. We're a generation. We're a people today. We, we have the love of Jesus. We have, we, we, we're people of hope. We, 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 no, no, we're not a generation of tears anymore. We don't cry anymore. We celebrate. That's what we do. We gather together and we celebrate. We celebrate how beautiful Jesus is. We celebrate our salvation. We just want a place of celebration. That's what we, we celebrate. We sing songs of celebration. We're a modern church. Oh, yeah? I'm going to tell you, in this modern church, in a time of gold and of riches and of fun and pleasure and backslidden cold prayers, in a time people don't want to pray. Not really pray. Nobody wants to put their face to the ground and plead. Not today. Not today. Nobody wants to simply intercede. We just want to put on a happy face. We want God to bless us with happy feet. We just want to celebrate. Feel good about what's going on. I'll tell you something. Jesus goes to his garden of Gethsemane. He's never experienced unbelief. Unbelief is sin. So his, his mountain is not a matter of unbelief. But he's got a mountain. And he goes there and he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says to the disciples, Will you stay? Stay and keep watch with me. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever got to the place in your life where you cry out before our God and you say, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death? Have you ever told somebody? Have you ever had an encounter with God where you said, if this keeps on going, it's going to kill me. I can't handle this anymore. Have you ever wept tears that were so hot that they rolled down your cheeks like blood? When was the last time? When was the last time the church that way. But today, we don't want to go there anymore. We don't need to because God's a God of love and of mercy and of grace. He's got it all figured out. We don't need to. I'll tell you something. God is a God of love and He is a God of grace. But you can't do away with a place called Gethsemane. You can't do away with that Gethsemane experience. That's where Jesus wept. He prayed. He interceded. He called upon the Lord. He, he sought His Father. And he cried out, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Don't let me have to. I, I can't take this anymore. And there could be a whole lot of discussion about what the cup was. I don't know. I kind of think this. I have many different thoughts about it. But one thought came to me. You know, back in Hebrews, we talked about how that he has been touched with all the infirmities. So, so folks, I almost think that that cup represents all the infirmities, all the stuff that we have to go through in our lives. All those things that are in our cup. He cries out. You know, I can hear him saying to his father, Father, I'm in a situation. I'm hoping. I'm pleading with you. I'm beseeching you. That's always very spiritual when you say beseech. He's saying, Lord, Father, it's enough. It's not only enough that he's going through, but that's enough for us to cry out. That's what we have to do. Cry out saying, Father, here I am. I'm pleading with you. We've got to believe like that. We've got to believe that the Father loved, loves us 
Jesus knew and believed the Father loved him, and the Father was about to reveal something marvelous to his heart. You go back and you see the series of agonies that Jesus went through. A series of fasting and prayer and weeping and tears. A series of spiritual events that led him to this place. And I believe that after every tear had stopped flowing, I believe in my heart that the Father bottled up every one of those tears. See, well, why? Because he is concerned. He experiences the infirmities in our lives. Our names are written in the palms of his hand. He remembers, he knows us. And after the tears have, can no longer flow, and after all has been said and done, here it is. Jesus prays the ultimate prayer. Gets up, looks the Father in the face, and this is what he says. I've prayed, and I wept, and I fasted, and I've done everything that I know I am to do. I've unloaded my soul unto you. Father, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there it is. That's it. It's not just speaking to the mountain. It's from the place of Gethsemane. We cry out and we say, Father, your will be done. I know what I think should be. I figured it all out, Lord, but Father, this is a prayer of belief. Coming before you with everything I think should be. That's unbelief. That's truly unbelief. You don't hear that. See, you can't pray. You can't pray the ultimate prayer of faith until you've unloaded everything in your soul. Until you go to the place of the Heavenly Father where the Heavenly Father is. Notice I said go. Because I'm talking about not a way of living. I'm not talking about a daily walk. I'm talking about confrontation. And that's missing from the church today. Confrontation. Confrontation. Confrontation is a place where you come. So when you come to the place... In the end, you say, I'm at the end. And you pour out your soul onto our God and you quit looking at the circumstances and you believe that God loves you and he'll not allow anything in your life except that which is good, which is right, and which is according to his will. Mountain be removed. Be thy will. Whatever be your will. And so we've got to give it up. We've got to give up trying to figure it out. We've got to give up trying to cast our... <laughs> we just got to cast our arms around our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, this is, this is not what I want. And I don't think that I can handle much more. But I know you're God Almighty. And I cast everything in your hands. Let your will be done. Let your will be done. You pray that ultimate prayer. 
after a series of events, a series of purging, crying, of tears, of say, Father, that you will be done. And God will begin to open up your eyes to a revelation. See, you see a lot of people who cried out before God. They go before Him and they ask Him to use them. They cry out to Him. They want, they want the Lord to give them patience. They want the Lord to do something in their families and their lives. Look what David said. It was good for me to be what? Afflicted. It was good for me. Why? So I learn your degrees. The Lord knows what he has to do. And the Lord, David is saying, this affliction, the punishment that you gave me was the best thing that could have happened to me. What I went through was the best thing that could have happened to me. I didn't think that way while I was going through it, I'm telling you. And before I went through it, I wasn't thinking that way. But now that I look back, we've got to decide once and for all that the Lord knows the path. He knows the cost. The moment you begin to pray, that kind of prayer can go into action. And the next day and the next day, things will begin to start happening in your life. But don't miss the answer that he's giving. Don't miss what he's doing because you're walking around despising God's answer, not liking the way things are turning out. He works. He knows what needs to be done. Don't walk around your life saying, you know, that's not fair. It's not what it should be. What's right? What's wrong? It's costing... Stop! He's working. Make that ultimate prayer. Make that ultimate prayer. Father, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes because I trust you. You only do what is right. What you're going to do is according to the big picture. The big picture. Well, I'll tell you right now, when I'm preaching right now, the message the Lord given to me, to you, all of us, is never going to work unless we're convinced, totally convinced that God loves us. It's not going to work if you focus on your sins and don't believe. You focus on your failures. Where we need to start, we need to start right now. I put up here to kneel before the Lord. To commit the keeping of our soul to our Lord. Stop spending so much time in life trying to figure things out, trying to make things up, trying to make it up to God. Stop trying to, to, to be the answer to everybody's prayer. Knowing the joy of the Lord comes when we cast ourselves into His care. And folks, I don't want us to get to the point in our life where we just flippantly pray, oh, the ultimate prayer, okay, all right, Lord. You know, not my will, but Your will. Like, it's all going to work out just fine now. No, no, first of all, you got to tell Him like it is. Talk to Him, get alone, and say, I'm not leaving this place. I'm not leaving this place till my soul is at rest. And you'll know when the mountain's gone. You'll know when the cloud, the dark cloud is removed because you're going to have a rest. And those around you, the relationship will know it too. They'll see it. When you stop trying to remove it on your own or you question God's work, but rest in His promises and His word. To be able to come to the point in our life when our Gethsemane we say, Heavenly Father, would you show me my heart? Show me where I am in my walk with you. Show me, Lord God. 
that I might rest in you. Or where I'm accusing you of being a child abuser. Is there anything in our heart, my Lord, that's hindering us? If there is, reveal it. Remove it by your grace. Take it out of my heart. I want to do something different today. I want to stand to your feet if you would. And I want us right now just to begin to thank the Lord for his love for us. There's a song that I'm going to be playing in a moment. But I want just to remind everybody that God's not mad at anyone in this place. Take that to the bank. He's not mad. And we need to just take the time, raise our hands, and just simply thank Him for His love. Thank Him for His grace and His mercy. Thank Him that we're His friend, His children, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Simply thank Him. Thank Him that we can approach His throne. Say, I have an assurance in my heart. Be able to raise our hand, knowing that He loves us, and we can cry out and say, Holy Spirit, Father, give us the Holy Spirit in a greater measure. So that I might know the mind of God in a deeper way, in His mind, that I might pray my heart, with my, all my heart, and be surrendered to Your perfect will. Be able to pray, Lord, whatever it takes. Wherever it ends, I will go all Your way in full surrender. Pray that kind of prayer.